Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. Today's episode isn't really about your money. It's about how do you teach kids and even potentially grandkids about the lessons of money. So often I hear people say that legacy is important to them, but legacy is not just something that they leave monetarily when they die. Legacy is the experiences and lessons that they have and teach to their family while they are still here. So this question or this topic is really going to touch upon just that. How can you most effectively teach kids and even grandkids about money, especially when money and long-term savings is probably the last thing on their mind? So this topic is based upon a listener question, and it comes from David. David, how are you? Thank you for the question. David says, James, we truly enjoy your YouTube videos and podcasts about saving for retirement. We have seven grandkids, ages 1, 7, 8, 10, 11, 13, and 14 years of age. Fortunately, they are good students and receptive to learning. And although I attempt to educate them about the dynamics of investing, I don't think I'm taking the correct approach in doing so. I would like to take time to introduce them to the investment world. Do you have any ideas on how to do so? Very good question, David. And as I mentioned, this is something that's very important. Chances are good if you're listening to this, maybe you've saved well and invested well and have learned a lot of important lessons along the way. And more than just passing on finances to children in the next generation, you want to pass along that wisdom and that information that you've accumulated. But how do you do that? Because your lessons are based upon years and decades even of experience. How do you pass that along to children who maybe are on the opposite side of that experience and don't yet have the same perspective as you? Well, in today's episode, let's touch upon that. And instead of just talking about investing, let's touch upon money management in general, which high level is saving, spending, and giving. So how do you teach kids how to spend? How do you teach kids how to save? How do you teach kids how to give? And how are you going to do that in a way that meets them where they are as opposed to trying to take the lesson that you've learned, maybe in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, and pass that on when you're just at a different point in life? So let's go through each of them. And let's start with spending. We'll go spending, then giving, then investing. And with spending, it's crazy to me the number of people who think that the best way to teach kids how to spend well is to give them a credit card as early as possible. There's something that they think that, oh, if they just have a credit card, they learn how to swipe it and they learn how to spend. And by the way, they start building credit and it's just something that can really, really go wrong if it's not done well. And yes, do they start building credit at an early age when that happens? Yes, sure. But building good money habits, building good spending habits is significantly more important than the extra bit of credit that you're going to build by having a credit card opened when that kid is a child. The most important thing when it comes to spending that kids can learn when they're younger is what spending feels like. What does money feel like? If they just go to Target and they're swiping a card to buy a new toy, they never feel it. Their brain literally does not register the pain the same way as they do or as it would if they were to hand over physical dollar bills. This is sometimes harder and harder to do because some stores are becoming completely cashless. But as much as possible, especially for a child, when you have dollar bills in your hand and you have to hand those over to pay for something, that hurts. That's painful versus when you have a piece of plastic, 
physiologically, your brain just does not even register that pain of handing over your hard-earned money like it does when you have cash. Now, a lot of this episode, I'm going to intertwine my own personal experiences with money, not that my experiences are the be-all, end-all, but it's just in a large way, of course, shaped how I view money management. But I remember going to the baseball cart shop in 7-Eleven as a child, and I would save up my allowance money so I could buy a little Debbie Brownie at 7-Eleven for 25 cents and then go to the baseball card shop and buy baseball cards. Well, my favorite player growing up was Ken Griffey Jr., and I loved buying Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards. The problem was he was the best player in the league, so his cards weren't cheap. It wasn't like going and buying a baseball card for some nobody. It was buying a baseball card for Ken Griffey Jr., and the price tags matched that. Well, walking into the store with cash made me appreciate that. It made me appreciate that his cards weren't cheap. And there was many times I would go to the store, I would ask the store owner to see all the Ken Griffey Jr. cards, and then I would leave that store without any Ken Griffey Jr. cards because the cards were too much, and I couldn't bring myself to part with the few dollars that I had saved up. So having that feeling of pain, having that feeling of friction was actually very healthy. It's healthy to start understanding the trade-offs. What's unhealthy is to feel like I could go somewhere, swipe a piece of plastic, and then deal with it later. All that's doing is pushing the pain into the future, and it's not teaching responsible money management. It's not teaching responsible spending. So I think this story is something we can probably all relate to, is how do we make sure that as we're spending, it's, it's not bad to spend. And as a financial planner, why do we plan? Well, we plan so that we can spend money on the things that are important to us, on the things that align with what we want to be able to do. The thing is, if you don't understand that trade-off, if you don't understand the friction, the pain involved with trading over your hard-earned dollars in exchange for some service or some product, you have a misalignment of values. It's just too easy to spend on everything, even those things that aren't necessarily beneficial to you and end up derailing you or end up keeping you from what actually is most important to you. So I personally, I didn't even have a credit card until I was 25 years old. I still rarely use credit cards and my personal spending. My wife and I, we primarily use debit cards just because it helps to incentivize better financial behavior as opposed to trying to be so focused on getting 1%, 2% cash back or points back or whatever it is. Now, we use credit cards and we have them and we use them strategically in certain ways, but there's this conception out there, a misconception out there, that good spending is all about maximizing the points you get for a transaction. That could not be further from the truth. Good spending is all about making responsible decisions, and responsible decisions are easier to make when you fully feel the weight of that decision in the moment, which is what happens when you're spending as a child and handing over cash as opposed to taking mom or dad's credit card and swiping it and saying, I'll figure this out later. So what's the best way to teach kids about spending? Well, there's a lot more to it, of course, than just this, but in my opinion, it's give them a finite resource. Whether this is an allowance or this is money for chores or this is maybe money that they're getting from work that they're doing. Helping them to understand that money is not endless, that is a very, very important lesson. And if you have $5 or $10 or $20 or whatever it is to spend in a month, if you have that in dollar bills, once you spend it, that money is gone. And you recognize that it's not until the following month or until you've done more chores or earned another paycheck until you can spend more. That's a very valuable lesson. Whereas if it's a credit card, that credit card seemingly has no limit, especially in the mind of a child where it can just be swiped, swiped, swiped. So helping to understand the friction, helping to understand the trade-offs, that's one of the most valuable things that I think you can do for a child because it helps them prioritize and it helps them to see how can I use these limited number of resources, these dollars, 
to buy what's actually most important to me as opposed to feeling like you can purchase everything. So that's the first of the three things I think is important to teach kids about money, which is spending. The second is giving. Now, as kids, for us growing up, it was putting money in the offering plate at church. Obviously, as kids, it's not usually a substantial amount of money, but it instills a practice of generosity. More than anything, again, with spending, same way, spending five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks on yourself each month, you're not going to be able to purchase a huge amount of goods or services as a child. The more important thing is instilling the habit, instilling the practice, teaching them to spend in a way that will serve them well when they're older. Same thing is true for generosity. This amount that a child gives is not going to be world-changing. They're not going to solve world hunger. They're not going to be able to keep a charity in business. They're not going to be able to give substantial amounts by themselves. But what it's doing is it's instilling that practice. So giving is a discipline that's as healthy for you as it is for the person, the organization receiving the gift. So as a child, what can you do? Make it tangible. In the same way that swiping a credit card just doesn't register, just doesn't seem real sometimes, well, sometimes giving can be the same thing. So as you're teaching kids to give, is this helping out a family that needs it? Is it putting quarters or dollar bills in the offering plate at church? Is it giving money to an organization that's doing great work in the community, but taking the time not just to say you must give, but teaching them the impact of it, teaching them the importance of it, that is a habit that will be another thing that will serve kids very well as they grow older. Because as I meet with people, whether they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, those that have a consistent practice of giving, they tend to have much higher quality of life. When it's not so much about how can I hoard resources, and again, this is a topic that just goes much deeper than money, But those that have a regular practice of generosity, which can be either with time or money, they tend to have higher quality of life. So teaching kids a practice of generosity, number one, is just a wonderful character trait for them to develop. But number two, you are also setting them up to have happier, more fulfilled futures. So what does this look like? Well, whenever kids receive an allowance or money from somewhere... Do you have them set aside a certain dollar amount or certain percentage to say this is how much we're going to give? We're going to break down any money received into saving, into spending, into giving. Take a percentage of that and set it aside for giving. Let them understand or teach them the impact of not spending everything that they have, but also setting some aside to save and setting some aside to give. So that is giving. And then third is investing. Well, how do you teach kids about investing? And this is a hot topic. I see lots of people who talk about the importance of financial literacy in school. And you'll see a lot of funny memes and quips about this. I was on Twitter the other day and someone posted, I'm glad school taught me the Pythagorean theorem instead of how to do my taxes. It's come in really handy this Pythagorean theorem season. And there's all kinds of funny stuff like that. Why on earth do we learn about this, but we didn't learn about taxes? We didn't learn about investing. We didn't learn about good budgeting and different habits like that. And you see people talking about the importance of teaching investing, but how do you do it? It's easy to say, yes, we need to do this. It's much harder to understand what's the most effective way of actually teaching kids how to do so. Because I remember when I was in sixth grade, we had to pick a stock and we had to follow it every day in the newspaper. Now, picking the stock, what do you know as a kid? You don't know anything. So you choose some ticker symbol or some letters that maybe stand out to you. And then every day, We had to follow that. It was a school's attempt to teach us about investing. What were the stock prices doing every day? What did I learn by that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Every day we pick up the newspaper and we say, okay, yesterday this ticker symbol. 
by the way, I don't even think they told us what the company was. It was just choose these three symbols, these three letters. Today, it's at $20. Next day, it's at 19. The following day, it's at $20.05. And what does that actually teach about investing? Exactly nothing. So yes, it's easy to say we need to teach kids about this, but how do you actually do it? It's not just saying, how do you find some letters called ticker symbols and then follow the prices and track it every single day? That's not going to cut it. So to me, it comes down to stories, activities, and practice. This is the most effective way we can teach children about the importance of investing and not just the importance of it, but the power of it. So if you go to a kid and say, hey, save $100 per month for your future, it's going to really work out for you in the long term. Well, it's difficult for adults to think long term. So why on earth would I expect a child to think that way? Well, instead, tell a story. Ask your child this question. Say, do you think a penny is a lot of money? Response is probably going to be no. Say, okay, so what would you rather have? One million dollars today or a penny that doubles in value every single day for a month? Let them think about it. Well, they've already told you a penny is not a lot of money. A million dollars is certainly a lot of money, especially to a kid. So let them mull that over. And it's probably not going to take too long for them to mull it over and say, well, mom, well, dad, uh, I want the million dollars today. Well, let them know. Say, after 31 days of doubling, by the way, you get your million here, at least in this story, you don't actually have to get the million bucks, of course. After 31 days of doubling, so for an entire month, that single penny would have turned into over $10 million. That is the power of compound interest. And have your kids go through an exercise. Say, get a piece of paper. Have that penny double every single day. And what they're going to see is, okay, one cent turns to two cents. Not very exciting. Two cents turns to four cents. Four cents turns to eight cents. Still not very exciting. Eight cents turns to 16. 16 turns to 32. 32 turns to 64. They're several days in, and it's still very boring. Well, by the time they get to the latter days... Now they're in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, the millions of dollars. They end over $10 million. That's how investing works. Investing doesn't seem very exciting on the front end. When your money is growing by some rate, say it's 5%, 10%, whatever it is, if you start investing 100 bucks, 10% gain on that is $10. That's not all that exciting. It turns $100 to $110. Well, if you are then getting 10% return on a million dollars, That's $100,000 of gain. That now becomes really exciting. If you're getting a 10% rate of return on $10 million, that's a million dollars of gain. So start to use these stories and these analogies to say this is what you're doing when you're investing. The difference, of course, is when you're investing, you're probably not doubling your money every single day, but the principle is still there. That's what you want to do is really get their attention of understanding the power of compounding. If your child's a little bit older, and they have some part-time work, you might even encourage them to think about retirement savings in a Roth IRA. And if you're going to do that, again, tell it to them as a story. Take an example of two people. Let's say myself and my wife for this example. So James and Ashlyn. Well, Ashlyn starts investing in her Roth IRA at the age of 20. And for this example, let's assume that she saves $250 per month, but then she stops at age 30 and just lets the money sit there until she retires at age 65. So again, she starts at 20, goes until 30, 250 bucks a month. But after age 30, she doesn't contribute a dime. She just lets that money sit there until she retires at 65. Now let's take a look at James. Let's assume that James uses that 250 bucks a month in his 20s to buy all the King Griffey Jr. baseball cards he couldn't afford as a child. 
So he builds an incredible baseball collection, but he doesn't actually start investing until he's 30. And then at age 30, he invests that same $250 per month from age 30 all the way until age 65. Now, let's assume that both James and Ashlyn get 10% per year average growth on their investments, which is about the long-term return of the S&P 500, and they both get that same return. Ashlyn has invested a total of $30,000. James, on the other hand, has invested a total of $105,000, and that's because Ashlyn invested from 20 to 30 and then stopped. James didn't start until 30, but then he invested all the way until age 65. Ask your child, who do you think ended up with more money? James invested significantly more money than Ashland, so it would reason, or stand to reason, that James probably has more money. Well, let's take a look. James's total investment value at the age of 65 is $813,000. So that's pretty significant. Of that amount, over 708000 of it is growth. So again, James ends up with 813000 708000 of which is growth. Ashland, though, her total investment value at age 65 is $1,343,000. Over 1.3 million of that is growth. Now, whenever you run these numbers, you think something has to be wrong here. How is it that Ashlyn invested so little, yet ended up with so much, especially when you consider that she just stopped investing completely at the age of 30? Well, again, that is the power of compound interest. The power of compound interest is the longer you let it work, the greater and greater your money can grow for you, even without you doing all the legwork. So that's why, to me, when I'm encouraging children or I'm encouraging young people to invest early, to me, it's not just about the long term in the retirement. Take a look at Ashlyn in this example. She stopped investing at age 30 and had more money freed up at that time to travel, to buy a home, to buy baseball cards, really whatever she wants. So thinking of it as planting seeds, if you plant enough of them early enough, you can let them work for you and you don't have to put in all the work yourself. Or in other words, the more money you put into investments on the front end, the less total work you have to do over the course of your career in order to get to the same or even better desired outcome in the future. So those are just a couple of the stories that might work. Now, activities work too. Don't just explain this. Don't make it just theoretical. Do it practically. And there's a thousand different ways you can do this. I'm by no means saying that my way of doing or what we're talking about here is the only way. These are just things that I've seen work. But one of the things with investing is you have to show it working. And I, again, personal story. I made my first investment or had my first investment in 2007. I didn't know anything about investing, but I got $1,000 in a mutual fund. Well, that mutual fund, I received it in 2007. It went on to lose 50% of its value over the next 18 months. I received it right at the beginning of the great financial meltdown of 07, 08, and 09. So I went on to sell it after losing 500 bucks of 50% of my mutual fund because I didn't know what else to do. Just owning a mutual fund taught me nothing about investing. Now, had it been combined with perspective and education and other things like that, it certainly would have been a good lesson. It would have been a good lesson because if someone had sat me down and said, look, that $100,000, it's not just invested in the quote unquote stock market. It's invested in real companies. And historically, an investment in U.S. companies has grown by 10% per year on average, but it never once has returned exactly 10%. There's good times and there's bad times and success comes from staying disciplined in the bad times so that you can participate in the good times. 
So had that been my perspective, as opposed to, oh my gosh, here's a thousand dollars that I have. And oh my goodness, 18 months later, it's worth $500. This investing thing is messed up and it really doesn't work. And it's just like gambling. Well, that was my impression because that was my only experience. So if you have an experience that's not also properly supplemented by guidance and perspective and education, it's going to be shaped by whatever the market happens to be doing. If you have someone who bought one stock one time and that stock made them 10,000%, that's going to really shape their experience and their thoughts towards investing way differently than someone who bought one stock and lost all their money doing so. What happened was the coincidence or what happened to have happened to their stock is really going to shape that. So having some perspective is very helpful. So what can you do? Explain what investing is. Explain when you buy a stock, you're buying a real company. That real company makes money. When you buy that company, you're buying the rights to that company's future income. There's no guarantees, but as a whole, if you purchase enough of these companies and spread out your money to enough of them, you're probably going to do really well over time. Now, this next part is one activity I've seen help. Part of it depends on your philosophy as parents. My daughter is six months old. She's far too young to teach about investing yet. We're sticking to learning how to eat first. But I know some parents that will allow their kids to quote unquote invest with them with the goal of teaching patients and really teaching deferred gratification. And these parents, they will give their child a really nice interest rate, maybe 5% per month, for example. So they tell their child, if you invest $10 with me, that $10 will be worth $10.50 by the end of the month. It will be $11 by the end of the second month. You can use simple interest here as opposed to compounding. $11.50 by the third, $12 by the fourth, et cetera, et cetera. So what it's doing is it's teaching them more than anything deferred gratification and also patience, which are two key factors when it comes to investing. Now, if your kid somehow has a million bucks, well, give them 5% per month, it's probably going to cost you a lot of money really fast. It might actually ruin your retirement. But $10 per year on your child's $10 investment it just might not be exciting enough to get a child motivated to do that. So you have to kind of bend the rules a little bit to how do we teach these lessons by giving an exaggerated interest rate over a condensed period of time, more than anything, to teach that investing money grows your money, but it does require patience and it does require deferred gratification. So those are just thoughts. All in all, on top of this, I would say being open with money with children can be very helpful. That doesn't mean you have to sit them down and show them your 401k balance. doesn't mean you have to sit them down and show them exactly how much you have left on your mortgage or anything else like that. But I remember when my mom would share with me, she would do something called a zero-based budget, where on the top of a yellow pad of paper would be, here's the income for the month. And then line by line, she'd start saying, okay, here's how much we're giving and tithing. Here's how much we're spending on groceries. Here's how much the mortgage is. Here's how much. And really just showed me how systematically from that top line number, here's all the expenses that come out, you start to appreciate the cost of living. You start to appreciate the value of a dollar. And really parents being open with that stuff, I would say is foundational into being able to teach kids about spending, about giving, about investing, when parents can share their experiences, both successes and failures, to allow their kids or to instill in their kids that ability to be better stewards, better managers of their money going forward. So that's it for today. David, I hope that was helpful. Let me know if not, if there's other questions and be happy to chat about that because this is a really important lesson. As I said at the beginning, legacy is an important thing that's just instilled in a lot of us. How do we leave an, a good legacy for kids or for grandkids? Now, legacy doesn't mean how can I die with the most amount of money for them? 
It's how can I leave them the lessons and the experiences I've gathered along the way? How can I share my wisdom with them? And teaching kids about money and proper money management goes a really long way in doing so. So thank you for the question, David. If you have a question that you want me to answer in a future episode, feel free to go to the readyforretirement.co webpage to submit that there. Also, if you have not already done so, please leave a review for the show. Just tap five stars, leave a comment or review if you'd like. That just helps more people find the show and really like being able to reach as many people as possible. And then finally, if you have not already done so, be sure to check out our YouTube page. It's under Root Financial Partners, and that's where you can find more content just like this to supplement this and really help you to create that secure retirement you're looking to create. So with that being said, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question, where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.